The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to Tech Check in Progress. 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 I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. The risk of individual institutions, uh, and I think that's consistent with a philosophy that... Uh, uh, that we all that we all support. Uh, additional capital at higher cost uh, costs us to actually uh, uh, potentially impair lending or slow down our lending. Uh, it may cause us to do other things from a competitive standpoint to cover the cost of additional capital. Is that what U.S. Bank thinks, Mr. Sarian? Thank you. Uh, we we continue to have a very simple business model, and although we are larger than we were a few years ago, the businesses that we're in are substantially the same. Our capital levels since uh, 2007 are actually 3x what they were at that time. So we believe we have a very strong capital rating, which is reflected in our high debt rating. Additional capital will increase the cost of debt. Mr. Diamond, you spoke yesterday about uh, additional um, uh, requirements for regulatory capital and liquidity standards and the impact it would have on the marketplace. Will you speak to that? Yes, sir. So, um, uh, to give credit where credit is due, Dodd-Frank accomplished a lot of what needed to be accomplished. Lehman Brothers would not happen again. I think the regulators should take a victory lap for that. Having said that, as often happens, you know, things went a little bit too far. So it's not just capital, liquidity requirements, international requirements, Basel requirements, et cetera, do restrict lending, raise the cost of lending, uh, you know, damage markets a little bit, reduce mortgage lending to part of some of our banks. Uh, we want good regulations. I think we need to spend a little more time at recalibrating the effect of these regulations you know, across the whole financial uh, system. So there's a cost to this, and there's an economic cost, and it changes behavior at the institution, which means you um, don't lend as aggressively on the margins. Yeah, and unfortunately, some of that's going to happen when things get worse. So JP Morgan will be sitting with a trillion dollars, unable to deploy it to help our clients, to meet intermediate markets at precisely the wrong time. So you all saw treasury markets, other markets get very rattled in March 2020, going back to 2019. And part of the reason was the inability of very well capitalized, very liquid banks unable to do what they really should be doing. Which clients. means you can't provide liquidity in the system at end of quarter, end of year. And so we're going to have choppier markets as a result of regulatory policies that impair your ability to make markets. Is that how you see it, uh, Mr. Moynihan, with Bank of America? There's no question that increasing capital for us 1% uh, makes us not be able to lend $160 billion of loans into the economy. It's that straightforward. It's a simple calculation. So there's an economic cost to regulatory capital requirements that are beyond what is economic or historic needs for your institutions. Um, thank you for your testimony. Thank you very much. Uh, the gentlewoman from New York, Mrs. Maloney who's also the chair of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, is now recognized for five minutes. Quickly. Get ready. 
Hi, thank you so much, uh, Chairman Waters, for calling this important meeting and all of our panelists. Uh, I, I, I'm, I thank you for all of your comments, particularly those who talked about wanting to reduce overdraft fees uh, that drain billions of dollars from America's poor and working class communities every year. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has found that overdraft uh, fees cost our consumers over $15 billion in 2019 alone. And these fees disproportionately target and penalize low-income consumers. They found that almost 80% of overdraft and non-sufficient fund fees are borne by only 9% of consumers, and they are all financially vulnerable. Uh, while I, I'm glad to see some banks have taken some initiative by eliminating or moving in that direction, it's concerning to me that it's taken this long and that many banks still have yet to make any voluntary changes. And with banks enacting different policies, consumers are left with little uh, consistency. They're very confused by these different policies. Uh, we must ensure that we have a comprehensive permanent solution uh, enacted to protect consumers. And that's why I have introduced the Overdraft Protection Act, which has been reported out of the committee. It builds on the Credit Card Bill of Rights, uh, which passed in 2009 and according to the CFPB has saved consumers over uh, $16 billion a year uh, by keeping fees in their, their pockets. Uh, I, I, I want to, in the consumer's pockets, I want to ask uh, a Bank of America and Citibank, because in your testimony you talked about your, your actions to eliminate fees. Uh, can you elaborate what product offerings have you uh, changed to reduce or eliminate the overdraft fees? And can you speak to how your consumer banking division has remained profitable in light of all of these changes? Uh, uh, first, uh, Mr. Moynihan and then Ms. Frazier. So I think you, you heard many of my colleagues talk about this, and this is a product in the industry. The first is a no overdraft product, and especially for students and younger people. We have four million of those, and I think if you total it up across the board, that product allows people to have no overdraft capacity. Then you have the ability for uh, other products for people to opt in, and what we've done is reduced our, our overdraft per occurrence fee from 35 to, 20, uh, to $10. We've reduced the no ability to have the NSF uh, type fees, the numbers of occurrences. So all that totals up that we're down 60% second quarter last year, second quarter this year, and it'll fall further because a lot of those changes took place and we recently announced that it's down 90%. But we're able to do that because of the scale and capabilities of our team in consumer banking. And these larger banks, it, in our variety of banks participate in our system, there's a variety of business models. But one of the things that'll be consistent is the scale we've been able to achieve in our company and these companies at this table have allowed us to pass through those benefits as a consumer and still remain profitable. Thank you, Ms. Frazier. Thank you very much, Representative. Lovely to see you. Um, we, are, we are proud at City to have eliminated overdraft fees and, and NSFs. Um, this was the right decision for our bank um, and is reflective of a multi-year um, commitment to having a customer-friendly approach to fees. Uh, similar to um, my colleague, Mr. Moynihan, um, we also have a, a product called the Access product that accounts for almost 20% of all of our accounts, in addition to the no overdraft, also is a very low cost, customer friendly account that has been growing substantially over the last few years and played a very important role during the pandemic 
for those who are most affected. It's something that we're committed to continuing to grow. Thank you. Well, I want to, uh, is there any other banks that can commit to overdraft, to eliminating overdraft fees altogether by 2025? Anyone else in the panel that can follow the leadership of these two banks? Then I'd like to, to move to uh, the, the um, interest rates that are rising and uh, causing problems or challenges with the housing uh, market and, and, uh, and making it uh, harder for, for first-time home buyers to be able to take out mortgages. Uh, again, I'd, I'd like to uh, ask uh, both uh, Bank of America and, and Citibank what you have done do you have any programs or ideas of how uh, we can make uh, help facilitate home ownership, uh, even with the challenges of increased interest rates? Uh, would be moving the 30-year mortgage to sort of a 50-year mortgage to lower the interest rate payments per month? Would that help? Any ideas that you may have? And after them, anyone else's ideas? First, Mr. Moynihan, then Ms. Frazier. I think... We have, a, we have programs that provide uh, down payment assistance um, and grants for that. If you get HUD counseling, we have programs to develop housing in our community uh, develop program, six billion a year we do in low income housing development and other types of housing development. So it's a, it's a multifaceted thing, but I think in the end of the day, uh, the amount of adjustment that will go on as rates adjust is intended to attack the inflation and it'll take a period of time for that to sort through. Thank you. The gentlewoman's time has expired. The gentlewoman from Missouri, Thank you. Mrs. Wagner, Thank you. is now recognized for five minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. I uh, thank you, That's Madam Chair Waters Chairman. at the House Financial I'd Services Committee. Like uh, you're watching uh, the big bank CEOs testify in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort. Uh, DeBosa is on assignment. You have been watching uh, the bank CEOs testify before the committee. We're going to monitor the Q&A and get back there. But in the meantime, the president is addressing the U.N. General Assembly. Uh, some reports from Bloomberg that he has tweaked his address to respond to Putin. Let's listen in. War chosen by one man, to be very blunt. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. No more important, 
than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Again, just today, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe in a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Now, Russia is calling, calling up more soldiers to join the fight, and the Kremlin is organizing a sham referenda to try to annex parts of Ukraine, an extremely <clears throat> significant violation of the UN Charter. This world should see these outrageous acts for what they are. Putin claims he had to act because Russia was threatened. But no one threatened Russia, and no one other than Russia sought conflict. In fact, we warned it was coming, and with many of you, we worked to try to avert it. Putin's own words make his true purpose unmistakable. Just before he invaded, Putin asserted, and I quote, Ukraine was created by Russia and never had, quote, real statehood. And now we see attacks on schools, railway stations, hospitals, one on centers of Ukrainian history and culture. In the past, even more horrifying evidence of Russia's atrocity and war crimes. Mass graves uncovered in Izium, bodies, according to those who um, excavated those bodies, showing signs of torture. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should not, that should make your blood run cold. That's why 141 nations in the General Assembly came together and to unequivocally condemn Russia's war against Ukraine. The United States has marshaled massive levels of security assistance and humanitarian aid and direct economic support for Ukraine. More than $25 billion to date. Our allies and partners around the world have stepped up as well. And today, more than 40 countries represented in here have contributed billions of their own money and equipment to help Ukraine defend itself. The United States is also working closely with our allies and partners to impose costs on Russia, to deter attacks against NATO territory, to hold Russia accountable for the atrocities and war crimes. Because if nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, then we put at risk everything this very institution stands for, everything. Every victory won on the battlefield belongs to the courageous Ukrainian soldiers. But this past year, the world was tested as well. And we did not hesitate. We chose liberty. We chose sovereignty. We, cho we chose principles to which every party to the United Nations Charter is beholding. We stood with Ukraine. Like you, the United States wants this war to end on just terms, on terms we all signed up for, that you cannot seize 
a nation's territory by force. That the only country standing in the way of that is Russia. So we, each of us in this body, who is determined to uphold the principles and beliefs we pledge to defend as members of the United Nations, must be clear, firm, and unwavering in our resolve. Ukraine has the same rights that belong to every sovereign nation. We will stand in solidarity with Ukraine. We will stand in solidarity against Russia's aggression, period. Now, it's no secret that in the contest between democracy and autocracy, the United States and I, as president, champion a vision for our world that's grounded in the values of democracy. The United States is determined to defend and strengthen democracy at home and around the world, because I believe democracy remains humanity's greatest instrument to address the challenges of our time. We're working with the G7 and like-minded countries to prove democracies can deliver for their citizens, but also deliver for the rest of the world as well. But as we meet today, the UN Charter, the UN Charter's very basis of a stable and just rule-based order is under attack by those who wish to tear it down or distort it for their own political advantage. And the United Nations Charter was not only signed by democracies of the world. It was negotiated among citizens, dozens of nations, with vastly different histories and ideologies, united in their commitment to work for peace. As President Truman said in 1945, the UN Charter, and I quote, is proof that nations like men can state their differences, can face them, and then can find common ground on which to stand, end of quote. That common ground was so straightforward, so basic, that today 193 of you, 193 member states have willingly embraced its principles. And standing up for those principles for the UN Charter is the job of every responsible member state. I reject the use of violence and war to conquer nations or expand borders through bloodshed, to stand against global politics of fear and coercion, to defend the sovereign rights of smaller nations as equal to those of larger ones, to embrace basic principles like freedom of navigation, respect for international law, and arms control. No matter what else we may disagree on, that is the common ground upon which we must stand. If you're still committed to a strong foundation for the good of every nation around the world, then the United States wants to work with you. I also believe the time has come for this institution to become more inclusive so that it can better respond to the needs of today's world. Members of the UN Security Council, including the United States, should consistently uphold and defend the UN Charter and refrain, refrain from the use of the veto, except in rare, extraordinary situations, to ensure that the Council remains credible and effective. That is also why the United States supports increasing the number of both permanent and non-permanent representatives of the Council. This includes permanent seats for those nations we have long supported and permanent seats for countries in Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. 
The United States is committed to this vital work. In every region, we pursued new, constructive ways to work with partners to advance shared interests, from elevating the Quad in the Indo-Pacific to signing the Los Angeles Declaration of Migration and Protection at the Summit of the Americas, to joining a historic meeting of nine Arab leaders to work toward a more peaceful, integrated Middle East, to hosting the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in this December. As I said last year, the United States is opening an era of relentless diplomacy to address the challenges that matter most to people's lives, all people's lives. Tackling climate crisis, as the previous speaker spoke to. Strengthening global health security. Feeding the world. Feeding the world. We made that priority, and one year later, we're keeping that promise. From the day I came to office, We've led with bold climate agenda. We've rejoined the Paris Agreement, convened the major climate summits, helped deliver critical agreements on the COP26, and we helped get two-thirds of the world's GDP on track to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And now I've signed a historic piece of legislation here in the United States that includes the biggest, most important climate commitment we have ever made in the history of our country, 300 and $69 billion toward climate change. That includes tens of billions in new investments in offshore wind and solar, doubling down on zero emission vehicles, increasing energy efficiency, supporting clean manufacturing. Our Department of Energy estimates that this new law will reduce U.S. emissions by one gigaton a year by 2030 while unleashing a new era of clean energy-powered economic growth. Our investments will also help reduce the cost of developing clean energy technologies worldwide, not just in the United States. <clears throat> this is a global game-changer, and none too soon. We don't have much time. We all know we're already living in a climate crisis. No one seems to doubt it after this past year. We meet. We meet, much of, as we meet, much of Pakistan is still underwater, needs help. Meanwhile, the Horn of Africa faces unprecedented drought. Families are facing impossible choices, choosing which child to feed and wondering whether they'll survive. This is the human cost of climate change, and it's growing, not lessening. So as I announced last year, to meet our global responsibility, my administration is working with our Congress to deliver more than $11 billion a year to international climate finance, to help lower-income countries implement their climate goals and ensure a just energy transition. The key part of that will be our PEPFAR plan, which will help half a billion people in especially vulnerable countries adopt to the impacts of climate change and build resilience. This need is enormous. So let this be the moment we find within ourselves the will to turn back the tide of climate devastation, the devastation and unlock a resilient, sustainable, clean energy economy to preserve our planet. On global health, We've delivered more than 620 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine to 116 countries around the world.
with more available to help meet the country's needs. All free of charge, no strings attached, and we're working closely with the G20 and other countries in the United States to help lead the change to establish a groundbreaking new fund for pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response at the World Bank. At the same time, we've continued to advance the ball on enduring global health challenges. Later today, I'll host the seventh replenishment conference for the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. With bipartisan support in our Congress, I have pledged to contribute up to $6 billion to that effort. So I look forward to welcoming a historic round of pledges at the conference, resulting in one of the largest global health fundraisers ever held in all history. We're also taking down the food crisis head on, with as many as 193 million people around the world experience acute, acute food insecurity. A jump of 40 million in a year Today, I'm announcing another $2.9 billion in U.S. support for life-saving humanitarian and food security assistance for this year alone. Russia, in the meantime, is pumping out lies, trying to pin the blame for the crisis, the food crisis, on the sanctions imposed by many in the world for the aggression against Ukraine. So let me be perfectly clear about something. Our sanctions explicitly allow, explicitly allow Russia the ability to export food and fertilizer. No limitation. It's Russia's war that is worsening food insecurity, and only Russia can end it. I'm grateful for the work here at the UN, including your leadership, Mr. Secretary General. Establishing a mechanism to export grain from Black Sea ports in Ukraine that Russia had blocked for months, and we need to make sure it's extended. We believe strongly in the need to feed the world. That's why the United States is the world's largest supporter of the World Food Program, with more than 40 percent of its budget. We're leading support, the leading support of the UNICEF efforts to feed children around the world. To take on a larger challenge of food insecurity, the United States introduced a call to action, a roadmap eliminating global food insecurity, to eliminating global food insecurity that more than 100 nation member states have already supported. In June, the G7 announced more than $4.5 billion to strengthen food security around the world through USAID's Feed the Future initiative. The United States is scaling up innovative ways to get drought and heat-resistant seeds into the hands of farmers who need them, while distributing fertilizer and improving fertilizer efficiency so that farmers can grow more while using less. And we're calling on all countries to refrain from banning food exports or hoarding grain while so many people are suffering. Because in every country in the world, no matter what else divides us, if parents cannot feed their children, nothing, nothing else matters if parents cannot feed their children. As we look to the future, we're working with our partners to update and create rules of the road for new challenges we face in the 21st century. 
We launched the Trade and Technology Council with the European Union to ensure that key technologies, key technologies are developed and governed in the way that benefits everyone. With our partner countries and through the UN, we're supporting and strengthening the norms of responsibility, responsible state behavior in cyberspace, and working to hold accountable those who use cyber attacks to threaten international peace and security. With partners in the Americas, Africa, Europe, and the Middle East, and the Indo-Pacific, we're working to build a new economic ecosystem where every nation, every nation gets a fair shot and economic growth is resilient, sustainable, and shared. That's why the United States has championed a global minimum tax, and we will work to see it implemented so major corporations pay their fair share everywhere, everywhere. It's also been the idea behind the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which the United States launched this year with 13 other Indo-Pacific economies. We're working with our partners in ASEAN and the Pacific Islands to support a vision for a critical Indo-Pacific region that is free and open, connected and prosperous, secure and resilient. Together with partners around the world, we're working to secure resilient supply chains that protect everyone from coercion or domination and ensure that no country can use energy as a weapon. And as Russia's war rolls, riles the global economy, we're also calling on major global creditors, including the non-Paris Club countries, to transparently negotiate debt forgiveness for lower-income countries, to forestall broader economic and political crisis around the world. Instead of infrastructure projects that generate huge and large debt without delivering on the promised advantages, let's meet the enormous infrastructure needs around the world with transparent investments, high-standard projects that protect the rights of workers and the environment, keyed to the needs of the communities they serve, not to the contributor. That's why the United States, together with fellow G7 partners, launched a Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment we intend to collectively mobilize $600 billion in investment through this partnership by 2027. Dozens of projects are already underway. Industrial-scale vaccine manufacturing in Senegal, transformative solar projects in Angola, first-of-its-kind small modular nuclear power plant in Romania. These are investments that are going to deliver returns not just for those countries, but for everyone. The United States will work with every nation, including our competitors, to solve global problems like climate change. Climate diplomacy is not a favor to the United States or any other nation. And walking away hurts the entire world. Let me be direct about the competition between the United States and China. As we manage shifting geopolitical trends, the United States will conduct itself as a reasonable leader. We do not seek conflict. We do not seek a Cold War. We do not ask any nation to choose between the United States or any other partner. But the United States will be unabashed in promoting our vision of a free, open, secure, and prosperous world and what we have to offer communities of nations. Investments that are designed not to foster dependency, but to alleviate burdens and help nations become self-sufficient. 
partnerships, not to create political obligation, but because we know our own success, each of our successes increased when other nations succeed as well. When individuals have the chance to live in dignity and develop their talents, everyone benefits. Critical to that is living up to the highest goals of this institution, increasing peace and security for everyone, everywhere. The United States will not waver in our unrelenting determination to counter and thwart the continuing terrorist threats to our world. And we will lead with our diplomacy to strive for peaceful resolution of conflicts. We seek to uphold peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits. We remain committed to our one China policy, which has helped prevent conflict for four decades. And we continue to oppose unilateral changes in the status quo by either side. We support an African Union-led peace process to end the fighting in Ethiopia, restore security for all its people. In Venezuela, where years of political oppression have driven more than six million people from that country, we urge the Venezuelan-led dialogue and return to free and fair elections. We continue to stand with our neighbor in Haiti as it faces political fueled gang violence and an enormous human crisis. And we call on the world to do the same. We have more to do. We'll continue to back the UN-mediated truce in Yemen, which has delivered precious months of peace to people that have suffered years of war. And we will continue to advocate for lasting negotiating peace between the Jewish and democratic state of Israel and the Palestinian people. The United States is committed to Israel's security full stop. And a negotiated two-state solution remains, in our view, the best way to ensure Israel's security and prosperity for the future and give the Palestinians the state which, to which they are entitled. Both sides, to fully respect the equal rights of their citizens, both people enjoying equal measure of freedom and dignity. Let me also urge every nation to recommit to strengthening the nuclear nonproliferation regime through diplomacy. No matter what else is happening in the world, the United States is ready to pursue critical arms control measures. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. The five permanent members of the Security Council just reaffirmed that commitment in January. But today, we're seeing disturbing trends. Russia shunned the non-proliferation proliferation ideals embraced by every other nation at the 10th NPT Review Conference. And again, today, as I said, they're making irresponsible nuclear threats to use nuclear weapons. China is conducting an unprecedented concerning nuclear buildup without any transparency. Despite our efforts to begin serious and sustained diplomacy, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea continues to blatantly violate UN sanctions. And while the United States is prepared for a mutual return to the joint comprehensive plan of action if Iran steps up to its obligations, the United States is clear. We will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. I continue to believe that diplomacy is the best way to achieve this outcome. The nonproliferation regime is one of the greatest successes of this institution. 
We cannot let the world now slide backwards, nor can we turn a blind eye to the erosion of human rights, perhaps singular among this body's achievements stands the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the standard by which our forebears challenged us to measure ourselves. They made clear in 1948, human rights are the basis for all that we seek to achieve. And yet today in 2022, fundamental freedoms are at risk in every part of our world, from the violations of in Xinjiang, Detail recent reports by the Office of UN and U.S. reports detailing by the U.S. High Commissioner, to the horrible abuses against pro-democracy actresses and ethnic minorities by the military regime in Burma, to the increased repression of women and girls by the Taliban in Afghanistan. And today, we stand with the brave citizens and the brave women of Iran who right now are demonstrating to secure their basic rights. But here's what I know. The future will be won by those countries that unleash the full potential of their populations, where women and girls can exercise equal rights, including basic reproductive rights, and contribute fully to building a stronger economies and more resilient societies where religious and ethnic minorities can live their lives without harassment and contribute to the fabric of their communities, where the LGBTQ plus community individuals live and love freely without being targeted with violence, where citizens can question and criticize their leaders without fear of reprisal. The United States will always promote human rights and the values enshrined in the UN Charter in our own country and around the world. Let me end with this. This institution, guided by the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is at its core an act of dauntless hope. Let me say that again. It's an act of dauntless hope. Think about the vision of those first delegates who undertook a seemingly impossible task while the world was still smoldering, think about how divided the people of the world must have felt with the fresh grief of millions dead, the genocidal horrors of the Holocaust exposed. They had every right to believe only the worst of humanity. Instead, they reached for what was best in all of us, and they strove to build something better. Enduring peace, comity among nations, equal rights for every member of the human family, cooperation for the advancement of all humankind. My fellow leaders, the challenges we face today are great indeed, but our capacity is greater. Our commitment must be greater still. So let's stand together to again declare the unmistakable resolve that nations of the world are united still, that we stand for the values of the UN Charter, that we still believe by working together we can bend the arc of history toward a freer and more just world for all our children, although none of us have fully achieved it. We are not passive witnesses to history. We are the authors of history. We can do this. We have to do it 
for ourselves and for our future, for humankind. Thank you for tolerance, for listening to me. I appreciate it very much. God bless you all. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. That is the president addressing the U.N. General Assembly, uh, saying that Russia's war in Ukraine, in his words, has shamelessly violated Ukraine's right to exist as a state and violated core tenets of the U.N. Charter, none more important, he said, than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Let's bring in our own Eamon Javers as we also await what uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James has called a major announcement. We now know what that news is. It's a civil lawsuit that's been filed against former President Trump, his family, and the Trump Organization. We now have a copy of that suit. Hi, Eamon. Carl, that's right. A lot of news breaking simultaneously here in New York City today. Let's start with the president of the United States. And you could see the strategy of this speech sort of unfolding as he delivered it. First, the president sought to isolate Vladimir Putin rhetorically, saying that Putin made the decision to go into Ukraine unilaterally. He based it on a lie that there was a threat to the Russian people as a result of Ukraine existing, saying that there was no threat. Nobody was in, there was no impending violence heading toward the Russian people as a result of Ukraine simply existing. And then you could see President Amen. Biden seeking to lay this all out. Yes, go ahead. Uh, before you get too far ahead, let's get to the New York Attorney General. I am announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system, thereby cheating all of us. He did this with the help of the other defendants, his children, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Eric Trump, and former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg and Trump Organization controller Jeffrey McConney. Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization repeatedly and persistently manipulated the value of assets to induce banks to lend money to the Trump Organization on more favorable terms than would otherwise have been available to the company, to pay lower taxes, to satisfy continuing loan agreements, and to induce insurance companies to provide insurance coverage for higher limits and at lower premiums. This conduct was all in violation of executive law, section 6312, which gives the attorney general broad and special powers to go after persistent and repeated fraud and illegality. As part of demonstrating illegality under that section of law 6312, we show that they violated several state criminal laws, including falsifying business records, issuing false financial statements, insurance fraud, and engaging in a conspiracy to commit each of these state law violations. 
We believe the conduct alleged in this action also violates federal criminal law, including issuing false statements to financial institutions and bank fraud. And we are referring those criminal violations that we've uncovered to the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York and the Internal Revenue Service. As a result of these violations, we are asking the court to, among other things, permanently bar Mr. Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, Eric Trump, from serving as an officer or director in any corporation or similar entity registered and or licensed in New York. To bar Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization from entering into any New York State commercial real estate acquisition or from applying for loans from any financial institution in New York for five years. To pay for the financial benefits obtained as a result of the persistent fraudulent practices at an estimated $250 million. And towards the end of my remarks, I will go into the other relief that we are seeking. At the center of this, of the year-long financial scheme, were the statements of financial condition that were prepared annually by and for Mr. Trump, specifically from 2011 to 2021. These statements were compiled by the Trump Organization executives and were issued as a compilation report by Mr. Trump's accounting firm. The statements are explicit that the preparation was the responsibility of Mr. Trump. Or starting in 2016, the trustees of his trust, Donald Trump Jr. and Alan Weisselberg, for the sole beneficiary, for the sole benefit of Mr. Donald Trump. Each statement was personally certified as accurate by Mr. Trump or by one of his trustees as part of the loan process. In the statement, Weisselberg would meet to review and approve the final statement every year. Mr. Trump made known through Alan Weisselberg that he wanted his net worth reflected on the statements to increase. A desire Mr. Weisselberg and others carried out year after year in their fraudulent preparation of the statements. And when asked about these meetings under oath as part of our deposition, both men, Mr. Trump and Mr. Weisselberg, invoked their Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, and they refused to answer. When asked under oath if he, Mr. Trump, continued to review and approve the statements, after becoming president of the United States in 2017, Mr. Trump again invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege and refused to answer. Over the course of our investigation, we found that Mr. Trump, his children, the Trump Organization, created and used more than 200 false and misleading asset valuations on his statement of financial condition over that 10-year period. They issued statements that were in clear violation of general accepted principles in the general accounting principles in the United States. 
despite representing that these statements were prepared in accordance with these principles. Some of the common tactics they used include representing that Mr. Trump had cash on hand that he did not have, ignoring critical restrictions that would significantly impact property values when setting valuations, changing the methodology used to value properties from year to year without reason or notice, and using vastly different methods to value different properties even in the same year, and including tangible items such as brand premiums, the Trump premium, when calculating an asset's value, despite the fact that they ignored the advice of outside professionals. They also ignored the advice and, uh, and, and appraisals of outside professionals, despite claiming those individuals provided certain figures. For example, they received a series of bank-ordered appraisals for the commercial property at 40 Wall Street in New York City that calculated the value of the property at $200 million as of August 2010 and $220 million as of November 2012. Yet, in his 2011 statement, Mr. Trump listed 40 Wall Street with a value of $524 million, which increased to $530 million over the next two years, more than twice the value calculated by the professionals. Even more egregious, the $500 million plus valuation was attributed to information from the appraiser who valued the building at just over $200 million. Another deceptive strategy they employed was to use objectively false numbers to calculate property values. Take Mr. Trump's triplex. You know, the triplex apartment in Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue? Mr. Trump represented that his apartment spanned more than 30,000 square feet, which was the basis for valuing the apartment. In reality, the apartment had an area of less than 11,000 square feet, something that Mr. Trump was well aware of. And based on that inflated square footage, the value of the apartment in 2015 and 2016 was $327 million. To this date, no apartment in New York City has ever sold for close to that amount. Tripling the size of the apartment for purposes of the valuation was intentional and deliberate fraud, not an honest mistake. Mr. Trump was intimately familiar with the layout of both the building and the apartment, having personally overseen the construction of both. Despite his sworn testimony before invoking his Fifth Amendment privilege, Mr. Weisselberg conceded that using the false square footage improperly inflated the value of the apartment almost threefold. Mr. Weisselberg admitted that this amounted to an overstatement of, give or take, $200 million. Misrepresenting the size of the apartment was only one of the many ways that Mr. Trump intentionally misvalued his asset for the purposes of increasing his net worth and inducing banks to offer more favorable terms. 
Mr. Trump also routinely ignored legal restrictions on development rights and marketability on properties that would significantly decrease property values. For example, let's take Trump Park Avenue in New York. This building contains both commercial and residential space. The unsold residential condo units owned by Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization represented the lion's share of the reported value for this property. Mr. Trump and his children intentionally ignored legal restrictions on some of the units that would have, had, that would have drastically changed the valuation. Specifically, the 12, 12 of those units were actually rent-stabilized apartments. A professional appraiser valued those 12 units at around $750,000, noting that the rent-stabilized units cannot be marketed as individual units for sale because the current tenants cannot be forced to leave. Despite this professional valuation, and Mr. Trump knowing full well the legal restrictions the 12 rent-stabilized units were valued, he valued them collectively on his statements at $49 million. That is about 65 times the appraised valuation. Mr. Trump also blatantly ignored legal restrictions at Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago was valued on the false premise that it sat on unrestricted property and could be developed for residential use. However, Mr. Trump knew that Mar-a-Lago was subject to a host of onerous restrictions and limitations. Mr. Trump himself signed deeds sharply restricting changes to the property and donating his residential development rights in an effort to get a tax deduction and later to lower his property taxes on the property. The deeds also require Mr. Trump to donate over 23% of Mar-a-Lago's value to the Historic Trust for Historic Preservation if he ever sold it. Despite these significant restrictions, Mr. Trump valued the property based on the false premise that it was an unrestricted residential 18-acre plot of land that could be sold and used as a private home. In fact, the valuations represent that these restrictions don't even exist. The club generated annual revenues of less than $25 million and should have been valued at more than, valued at about $75 million. However, Mar-a-Lago was valued as high as $739 million. Mr. Trump used inappropriate schemes to inflate the value of his other golf clubs. He valued the clubs based on their fixed assets. In other words, the money spent to acquire and to maintain them, despite being informed by valuation professionals that this practice was inappropriate for a club operating as an ongoing business. He again added a brand premium when determining the value of the club, but claimed in that is that New York Attorney General Letitia James laying out a civil lawsuit against former President Trump, members of his family and his business, seeking a $250 million judgment and making a criminal referral to the Department 
of Justice. Let's bring back our Eamon Javers in New York. Eamon, uh, the Attorney General of New York calling this intentional and deliberate fraud and detailing uh, the findings here. And this comes as the president is also facing um, you know, legal jeopardy over retaining documents uh, at Mar-a-Lago. How does this shape the political landscape and, uh, and as we head into midterms and beyond? Well, John, first of all, these are significant allegations against the former president of the United States, the attorney general of New York here, uh, suggesting that he inflated the value of all sorts of his assets, real estate and financial, uh, in order to gain financial benefits for himself, that he did this deliberately. He did it knowingly and with the aid of his accountant and also of his adult children. So one of the interesting aspects of this is going to be the fact that now we have Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, and Eric Trump all brought into this case as well. They'll have their own uh, legal strategies. They'll have their own defense mechanisms. And of course, they have just generationally a different time horizon for defending this kind of thing. Ultimately, you could see penalties here, as the attorney general called it, relief here uh, against the, pre the former president of the United States, uh, including things like banning him from conducting business or taking out a loan in the state of New York. A long process between now and then of course, and the former president is likely to fight this in court. We do have a statement already now from the Trump legal team. They're saying today's filing is neither focused on the facts nor the law. Rather, it's solely focused on advancing the attorney general's political agenda. It is abundantly clear that the attorney general's office has exceeded its statutory authority by prying into transactions where absolutely no wrongdoing has taken place. So, John, this is a pol political figure who has uh, escaped scrutiny on a number of occasions, the very highest level impeachment uh, in the United States Senate impeachment trials. Uh, he has been able to prevail in all of those cases for the most part uh, by relying on this formulation politically that he is the victim here and there's an unjust prosecution. You can expect to see that strategy play out here and you can expect to see it uh, warmly received by his political base, particularly when you have uh, a political figure like James who is a Democrat in a blue state like New York as the sort of antagonist or foil here for him politically. So there's the legal machinations here, and then there's the political machinations, and I think you can expect to see Trump once again pointing, pointing to himself as the victim of prosecutors gone wild here, John. Back over to you. Hey, Eamon, it's, it's Carl. I wonder if you can talk about the scope of the investigation and of some of the allegations. Uh, she framed it as being staggering fraud, uh, 200 false or misleading uh, statements between the years of, say, 2011 uh, and 2021 uh, that she, I guess, is arguing he had personal oversight of. Yeah, and she's saying here that some of this was particularly blatant, right? Like she's alleging that he tripled more, about tripled the size of his apartment falsely uh, on paper in order from about 11,000 square feet to about 30,000 square feet in order to make it seem more valuable and therefore have a financial benefit to himself. She's also saying that his personal uh, property in Mar-a-Lago was falsely described as unencumbered by various legal restrictions at a time when Trump had signed documents which said that in fact it was encumbered by various legal restrictions. So she's saying that this was blatant, that Trump knew it, and he did it anyway. And she's trying to drive a very clear through line here to say that Donald Trump knew this, did it anyway, because of the financial benefit. And because, as he told, allegedly told his accountant, he wanted his net worth every year to be seen as increasing because that was part of the Trump overall strategy, the Trump overall brand. And of course, uh, she's alleging here a significant dollar amounts uh, in terms of fraud. So we'll wait to see uh, what the 
former president has to say. You can imagine he will respond to this pretty quickly, uh, and then we'll see what the legal process is from here. But this opens up another legal front now for this former president who is being hemmed in on a number of different scenarios, and he does not have the protections of the presidency any longer as he seeks to defend himself in all this. Carl? Uh, not at the moment, uh, Eamon, and, uh, and we'll see, though, what that pretends for his political ambitions from here. We also want to bring in our Robert Frank. Robert, uh, a number of allegations here about how a, a very wealthy person is um, valuing property. How, how common is this sort of uh, practice, perhaps? And how common is it for it to be prosecuted in this way? Well, in New York especially, there are all kinds of games that are always being played in both the residential and commercial side to both inflate values for loans or for sales and to deflate those values for tax purposes. You know, to me, the bigger question here is what does this mean for the Trump organization? What does it mean for Trump's financial empire? And Letitia James saying that this is a death knell to the Trump organization. But if you look at what it actually could mean for them, Worst case scenario, he, he and his family are prevented from holding office in a New York-based company and prevented from taking loans. Even if that is the case, and again, a worst case scenario, the Trump Organization does not depend on New York all that much compared to, let's say, Florida, Bedminster in New Jersey. So even though the Trump Organization sort of started and its origin is in New York, even if they get cut off from those assets, there's the Trump Hotel in Central Park, there's three smaller golf courses, and there's Trump Tower. The Trump Organization really earns its living from Mar-a-Lago, from Bedminster, from Doral, from these other courses and properties that are outside of New York. So a $250 million fine, especially since they just sold the Washington Hotel for three seventy-five. dollars is probably manageable for the Trump Organization after all is said and done. The bigger issue for the Trump Organization and the Trumps is this criminal case that is now underway on the tax fraud side. After the CEO, Alan Weisselberg, pled guilty to tax fraud, he's going to be testifying against the Trump Organization. That is a criminal case that could have much deeper consequences for the future of the Trump Organization and their fortune than this civil case. Yeah, that's good perspective because a lot of these uh, start to blend together. It's hard to keep track, Robert, of the concurrent tracks. Appreciate yep. that. Our Robert Frank, our Eamon Jotters at the U.N. We're going to watch all of this as the market's been hanging in there. Equities green. Two-year did get above four. Let's get to the judge in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.